Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 6, The Comanches. I'm Brandon Seal. In March of 1759, San Antonio was a flurry of panic and activity. The missions scrambled to finish their walls, vecinos fortified their humble homes as best they could, and an armed force that grew daily drilled in the Plaza de Armas. This hastily assembled retaliatory force was comprised of Presidio soldiers from San Antonio, of course, but also from the other Presidios along the Rio Grande in Coahuila and as far away as San Luis Potosí. Yet the core of the force were San Antonians themselves, some 330 San Antonio vecinos, Mission Indians, and their relatives from other towns along the new Spanish frontier. San Antonians, though, might have thought they were past this. Just a decade prior, they had won peace from their old enemies, the Apaches, and presumed that they had finally secured their place on this frontier. What they didn't realize was that the Apache peace had, in reality, been won not only by Spanish arms, but by pressure from another, even more fearsome band of Indios Barbaros pressing down on the Apaches from the plains. And in that March of 1759, when the sole survivor of a 20-man presidial outpost in the hill country that had just been massacred stumbled into town, San Antonians realized that nothing now stood between them and the Comanche menace. The Comanches, or Nemerna in their own language, were cousins to the Ute and Shoshone tribes much further north. For centuries, they had lived hard, malnourished lives in the Rocky Mountains that left them physically smaller than many of the Native American tribes around them, until they, like the Apaches, had been ennobled by their discovery of the horse. Yet the Apaches only used horses. The Comanches were horse men. One observer would write that on foot, quote, they are heavy and ungraceful, but the moment they mount their horses, they seem at once metamorphosed, end quote. No one who ever saw them ride failed to comment on their mastery of the art, And had they lived in a different time in a different place, you might have sworn that they were the inspiration for the myth of the centaur. Comanches placed their children on horseback as soon as they could sit up straight. At an early age, they were trained to pick up items from the ground at a gallop, starting with stones, then sacks, then finally other Comanches, whom they never left behind on a battlefield. They rode on light saddles, bareback pads really, which gave them confident, intuitive seats. They hiked their stirrups up high and squatted in them for stability when firing a bow and arrow and for power when driving their lances and braided ropes into their horses' manes in order to hang under their necks and fire their bows and arrows from safety. Within only 150 years of descending from the Rockies, they had carved out a veritable empire, to use historian Pekka Hamalainen's term, the largest post-Columbian empire in North America, larger even than any of the European holdings at the time. They soon incorporated many of their vassals into a sort of loose confederation that covered the entire Great Plains from Canada to Mexico, where their Shoshone dialect became a sort of lingua franca, the ultimate mark of cultural domination. And whereas the Apaches planted some crops each year, the Comanches proudly planted none. They were hunters, and only hunters. As T.R. Fehrenbach tells us, and by the way, it's his book, The Comanches, that I'm drawing from extensively here, heaven for a Comanche was the happy hunting grounds. And most of them didn't have to wait long before going to heaven. Life was short and fierce. Girls began childbearing in their early teens, just as boys were passing through their spirit journeys and entering the world of warriors. Status was determined by displays of bravery on the battlefield, such as counting coup or touching an enemy in the heat of battle. And on the battlefield, they were ferocious sights. Their long black hair slick with bear grease, their faces painted black and red, occasionally donning a buffalo skull for additional effect. They attacked by the light of the full moon, wielding bison hide shields, lances, bows and arrows, and later, rifles. Death was a mercy to their enemies. The less fortunate were enslaved and horrifically tortured. Scalping was the ultimate humiliation that they could bestow on an enemy, believing that it prevented their souls from entering the happy hunting grounds. And yet we shouldn't suppose that life in these bands was unhappy. 
By all accounts, the Comanches were like all people. They found joy and triumph amidst hardship and tragedy. Some European captives would later refuse to go back to, quote, civilized society after they had lived amongst the Comanches long enough. These were a free people living in the full exercise of their power in a state of nature, and perhaps at some level in touch with certain aspects of the human condition that Western society has spent millennia learning to repress. On the warpath, they followed leaders of charisma and leaders who could produce booty. The bands themselves were held together by only the loosest of bonds, with no band accountable to any other. This is why it was so maddeningly difficult for Europeans to make peace with the Comanches. As soon as peace had been negotiated with one band, a new band would descend upon them, often composed of some of the same warriors they thought they had just made peace with. The Comanches soon discovered a particularly effective strategy against the Spanish. The fast-moving Comanches would launch a bold initial attack, with all the terror of their appearance and their reputation preceding them. As the less mobile Spaniards braced for impact, the Comanches would break off and begin to encircle them, weaving and dodging to deny their enemies an easy target and lobbing arrows into the tightly packed Spanish formation. It's hard to imagine what was worse for the Spaniards, the actual arrows raining down upon them or the inability to do a damn thing about it. Eventually, the Europeans' discipline would erode and they would lash out at their attackers. The Comanches would quickly retreat, drawing their enemy out for miles if possible over the featureless plains. Then, just as the Spanish began to believe that they might have driven them off, the Comanches would reveal themselves in all their strength and glory and swoop down on their disorganized enemy for the final blow. And in 1743, they appeared in San Antonio. By that same year, they had cut off the Apaches from their trade with New Mexico and prevented them from planting their spring crops, creating acute shortages in Apache camps. This pressed the Apaches at first into fiercer conflict with the citizens of San Antonio, eventually driving them to make peace in 1749, as we saw in the previous episode. San Antonians at the time, however, weren't privy to all the information that we have today. They read the Apache overtures of peace and alliance as sincere, as the beginning of a new, amicable relationship with their former enemies. And so, as agreed in the Peace of 1749, the San Antonio missionaries sent forth new missions into the hill country to minister to their new allies, including a mission in a presidio on the San Saba River near modern-day Menard, Texas. Yet even after several years, these missions would fail to record a single actual Apache recruit. The Spanish observed that the Apaches seemed to use the missions only as trading posts or as occasional refuge from the new, more menacing, and better-armed Indians migrating south. These new Indians they called Norteños, men from the north, a broad term for the loose confederation of Tayovayas, Tonkawas, Wichitas, Hassanai, and others that had fallen under Comanche hegemony. The Comanches were relentless in their attacks on the Apaches, whom they regarded as their archenemies. And the increasing coziness of the Apaches with the Spanish only heightened Comanche's suspicions of the Spanish as well. Playing on this, the Apaches began to engage in a rather sophisticated game of deception. They would raid Spanish settlements or steal Spanish livestock and leave behind Comanche trinkets. Alternatively, they would raid Comanche camps and leave behind Spanish goods. And it worked to tragic effect. In late 1758, the Comanches and their Norteño allies attacked the San Saba mission in retaliation for one of these Apache frame-ups. Sadly, the Franciscan founders of the San Saba mission, honoring a now 100-year-old tradition, had quarreled with the Spanish military authorities and settled their mission four miles away from the nearby Presidio's protection. As such, Colonel Diego Ortiz, the San Saba Presidio commander, was close enough to hear the sounds of the San Saba mission attack, but far too far away to do anything about it. In a matter of minutes, the Comanches killed eight Spaniards and 17 mission Indians, none of them Apache, of course, with only one friar escaping to tell the tale. Colonel Ortiz and the Franciscans pulled back to San Antonio and left behind only a small, 20-man unit to man the Presidio and guard the horse herd. San Antonians had every right to be terrified or to flee to the interior as they had considered in 1745, but they didn't. They called a council of war. On January 3, 1759, 
representatives of the frontier provinces and Spanish military authorities convened to plan a response. Decades of struggle on the frontier had taught them the importance of attack, and just ten years before, they had brought to their knees the feared Apaches, who now gleefully joined them in their council of war against the Comanche enemies. Decades of struggle on the frontier had taught them the importance of attack, and just ten years before, they had brought to their knees the feared Apaches, who now gleefully joined them in their council of war against their Comanche enemies. The council decided to launch a punitive expedition and called out the militia. 241 volunteers and 90 mission Indians, the better part of the men of fighting age in the San Antonio area, answered, along with 139 Presidio soldiers mustered from throughout the frontier. Although these 331 militiamen were mere, quote, cowboys, tailors, farm boys, cigar makers, carpenters, leather workers, and miners, end quote, according to the colonel's official account, we do them a disservice by discounting their soldierly qualities. Many of these vecinos had served in the Presidio unit before, and most all had drilled in the local militia or responded to at least one Indian raid in their lifetime. They were schooled as well in the tradition of the Compañías Volantes, units of light cavalry with a long tradition in Hispanic culture, back to the jinetes of old Spain. The jinetes weren't nobles, yet they were property men, yeomen we should call them, with the means to arm themselves and provide their own string of horses when called into action. A great mythology had formed around them in the Reconquista of the 15th century, and the tradition found new life on the plains of northern New Spain against the mounted Indians of the New World. And all of these men in 1759 carried in their heads the songs of their predecessors' heroism, stories of men charging their foes with their reins in their teeth to free their hands for their weapons, of men deflecting arrows with their shields and dropping their enemies at a gallop with well-placed shots fired from their smooth-bore muskets. Each of the members of these compañías volantes, by regulation, was required to arm himself with a long gun, a pistol, a three-pound lance, and a leather shield, which they held with the reins in their left hand. They wore wide-brimmed broad hats, tight canvas trousers, and high-shanked leather boots. To the standard equipment, San Antonians added a reata, or lasso, which they would weaponize to great effect. With a lasso, they could bring down a mounted opponent, snatch a weapon right out of his hand, or rope an enemy fleeing on foot. They invented saddle horns for tying off these lassos to their high-crowned saddles, saddles of a style which had been reserved for nobility in the old world, but which were both eminently practical for these frontiersmen, and also a mark of how these free, propertied men saw themselves. Indeed, that 241 vecinos and 90 mission Indians had the means to arm themselves and provide their own horses says something about the broadly distributed material wealth that was slowly accruing to these frontier settlers. But just as the Spanish commanders were admiring the force forming up all around them in March 1759, the Comanches punished them for their delay. Almost exactly one year to the day after their attack on the San Saba mission, the Comanches and their allies attacked what remained of the San Saba Presidial Troop and slaughtered 19 soldiers, leaving only one survivor to tell the tale. Hence the flurry of panic and activity with which we began the episode. There was nothing now standing between San Antonio and annihilation at the hands of the Comanches. Sometime in mid-August 1759, Colonel Ortiz marched out of San Antonio with his 331 volunteers, 139 Presidio soldiers, 1,500 horses, and about 134 Apache allies, whose role in provoking the Comanche attacks was still undiscovered. It was perhaps the largest armed concentration of men that had ever been mustered west of the Mississippi and north of the Rio Grande up to that time. What today could make a quarter of the population of a city march out together, without pay, and into the homeland of the most feared warriors the continent had ever known? And indeed, there were few others along the new Spanish frontier that would have done it even then. Many new Spanish settlements under such constant menace dissipated or retreated into a siege mentality, or in some cases, became vassals of the Comanches themselves, plantations where they grew children for adoption or slavery. There's no analog to this in North American history that I can think of either. That little frontier San Antonio could muster a punitive expedition of 470 men says something remarkable about its citizens. The expedition's commander, Colonel Diego Ortiz, was another of these great Spanish Indian fighters, among the last of the storied conquistadors. 
In his lifetime, he would fight and largely win Indian campaigns across the North American continent, from Florida to Texas to Arizona, Sonora, and Sinaloa. Yet not only had he learned how to defeat Indian enemies in the field, but also how to treat with Indian allies in friendship. For all the fearsomeness that goes with our image of Spanish conquistadors, what they were probably best at was diplomacy. Since the days of Cortes, the Spanish military success was almost always accompanied by strategic Native American alliances, even with tribes as untrustworthy as the Apaches. The San Antonio expedition picked up the trail of the Comanches and their allies at the ruins of the San Saba mission on September 1st, 1759. Colonel Ortiz pushed his diverse force at a madman's pace and never let up. They would cover 400 miles during the hottest part of the year in one month, some 17 miles per day on average, despite having their foraging parties attacked constantly, their flanks harassed, their horses stolen, and their sleep interrupted by war cries unleashed by the Comanches in the night. Disappointingly, their Apache allies only made things worse, leaving them occasionally for days at a time to hunt, particularly at the most critical moments of the march when battle seemed nearest, it seemed. But the expedition never faltered, pursuing the enemy deeper into his own territory than he'd ever been pursued before. Sometime around October 1st, 1759, a month or so into the march, the expedition caught up to a group of Comanche allies that had been unable to outrun them. Burdened by their baggage, their horse herds, and their own families, this particular group was slow in getting across a tributary of the Red River. Colonel Ortiz ordered an attack, and the expedition emerged victorious, killing 50 of the enemy and capturing 150 more along with many of the horses originally stolen from San Saba. And here, Colonel Ortiz could have turned back. He had recaptured the horse herd and sufficiently punished the enemy to satisfy Spanish honor and to have justified the expedition. Indeed, his volunteer vecinos, composing two-thirds of his force, could have likely forced his hand had they insisted on turning back then. But they didn't, and it seems like the idea was never seriously entertained. The men in the expedition had learned too well the lessons of the frontier to ease off the attack now. Turning back would have exposed themselves to harassment all the way to San Antonio, and indeed, it would have likely invited a new round of raids the next year as the Comanches sought to satisfy their own honor. The frontiersmen knew that they had to strike the enemy in his home to teach the Comanches the true cost of making war on San Antonio. They pushed on, exasperating the Comanches with their persistence and unflappability. And at long last, on October 7, 1759, the Comanches decided to give battle, just 11 or so miles away from the October 1st encounter. They had retreated now to the edges of their territory, and their own families were now just a few miles away across the Red River. They had nowhere else to go. The Comanches fell back on a familiar battle plan. Sixty or seventy mounted warriors hid in a wooded area along the San Antonians' line of march. They sprung their ambush, surprising the San Antonians and inflicting some casualties, but failing to break the force, which quickly formed their battle line and switched to fresh mounts. The Comanches tried to encircle them, but the tactic was successfully parried by Colonel Ortiz, causing the Comanches to retreat in apparent panic through a wooded path that led down to the Red River. Colonel Ortiz's San Antonians followed the fleeing Comanches through the wood and out onto the riverbank overlooking the Red River. There, they were surprised for the second time that day, though this time by what they saw. Below them wasn't an empty river valley or even the temporary encampment of a hunter-gatherer tribe. Beneath them, across the Red River from the ironically named modern town of Spanish Fort, Texas, was a fortified city, probably the largest city for hundreds of miles in any direction and possibly the largest Native American settlement west of the Mississippi at the time. It supported a population variously estimated at two to 6,000 Native Americans, primarily Tayovayas or Wichitas, but ruled over by the Comanches who used it as a trading post. The village and its fields spilled over both banks of the Red River. Yet there, on the northern side, stood a citadel, some 130 yards long by 90 yards wide, surrounded by a wooden palisade and an earthen moat. Something about it, however, didn't quite fit the style of other Native American settlements. And the question arose, what could have concentrated Plains Indian trading activities around this otherwise unremarkable spot? 
The answer fluttered above the citadel in the breeze in the form of a French flag. The French, it soon became clear, were not only trading with and supplying the Comanches, they were actively facilitating alliances between the Comanches and their Norteño allies. Spain's worst fears about French meddling in their North American territories had come to life. At least 600 warriors opposed Colonel Ortiz and drew up their battle lines on both sides of the Red River. Wisely, Colonel Ortiz called off his forces' pursuit of the retreating Comanches and drew up his own battle lines. He deployed his presidial soldiers in the center, his militiamen on the left, and the Apaches and Mission Indians on the right. The Comanches lured the San Antonio expedition forward onto the Sandy Riverbank and within range of musket fire from the palisaded citadel, where some 14 Frenchmen directed fire against the expedition. Outside the walls and on the Texas side of the river, Comanches with French muskets harassed their attackers' flanks, riding at them at full speed, firing, then returning to their lines to grab a freshly loaded musket and repeating the cycle. These tactics prevented the expedition from getting out of the sandy and boggy embankment and frustrated their attempts to position their artillery. Colonel Ortiz would only get off 11 rounds from his cannon before two of them were captured in the back and forth of the battle. The San Antonio expedition fought bravely, but they could never make it across the river or halt the flow of supplies and reinforcements, which seemed endless, from the northern bank, which the enemy crossed at invisible fords. The Red River was only a few dozen yards wide at this point and nowhere more than four or five feet deep. And as night began to fall, a larger enemy force was suddenly seen fording the river at yet another point. Ortiz ordered a withdrawal. As night fell, Colonel Ortiz and the other officers took stock of what had happened. At least 40 or so of the Comanches lay dead before them, and they could hear the laments and death songs of the Comanches throughout the night. The San Antonians certainly didn't command the field, however, as they had been the ones forced to withdraw, and the prospect of repeating the same attack the next day offered little promise of a favorable result. Nineteen of their men, primarily the Presidial regular soldiers, were dead, and another fourteen wounded. The four field pieces they still held had proven ineffective against the fort and the Comanche's mobility. The enemy seemed to have nearly limitless supplies on the north bank of the river, and who knew what reinforcements might be on the way. And Colonel Ortiz's Apache allies had conspicuously underperformed, and seemed to be dissolving into the night. The next morning, Colonel Ortiz reformed his lines to reconnoiter the area and assess the Comanche's remaining strength. It became apparent, however, that the Comanches were not inclined to give battle again. And so the next day, Ortiz and his San Antonians packed up and began their return march. The Battle of the Twin Villages, as this engagement is remembered owing to confusion as to what side of the Red River the principal village actually occupied, went down in history for 200 years as a Spanish defeat. But that really doesn't fit the facts. When an army pursues an enemy 400 miles into their territory, assaults their largest commercial center, retreats in good order with 150 captives, and is not in turn pursued by that enemy, it sure doesn't look like a defeat. Fortunately, one of Colonel Ortiz's captains kept a journal of the expedition, and historian Robert Weddell ably deploys it to redeem the colonel, whose reputation suffered mightily at the hands of his successor. San Antonians' boldness in attacking the Comanches in their own territory chastened them, and bought some years of peace for the town. Several of the Comanches' allies even entered into outright peace treaties with San Antonio, realigning themselves away from the French for their trade as well. It was the very gradual beginning of a new Spanish-Comanche alliance of convenience against the Apaches, which allowed for the reestablishment of a military outpost, though not a missionary one, on the San Saba River, to serve as an early warning tripwire for San Antonio. And we hear no more of French encroachments up the Red River, suggesting that they too packed up after being discovered and pulled back to Louisiana. The Battle of the Twin Villages was perhaps the largest armed engagement on Texas soil in the 18th century. It pitted as many as 2,000 men against each other for control of the province. I can't think of another example in the history of North America where so many volunteers, Ciudadanos Armados, marched so far out from the edges of civilization to pursue a Native American force so deeply into his own territory. And that that territory was the heart of the great Comanche Empire, the largest and most feared Native American empire on the continent, 
makes it that much more impressive. Still, even as the San Antonians had much to be proud of, they marched back into town in November 1759 with 50 fewer men than they had marched out with. And as much as the expedition was an affirmation of new Spanish strength and the hardiness of the men living on that frontier, it was also a reminder of the strength of the growing Comanche Empire and the presence of European rivals in their midst. It would help provoke a tour by a royal inspector in the next episode that will have important implications for San Antonio. But something more important had been discovered on the march as well. Apache untrustworthiness. Colonel Ortiz's Apache allies had actively underperformed during the entire expedition, disappearing at the most inopportune times and reappearing only to deliver bad news or to ask for help. Further, in the months since the Comanche destruction of San Saba, evidence had begun to mount that the Apaches had in fact enticed the Comanches into making that attack. By the end of the expedition, Colonel Ortiz had become convinced of Apache duplicity and of the fact that they were the true enemy to Spanish advance along the frontier. He would become the first, but not the last, to advocate for the policy that several future nation-states would adopt toward the Plains Indians, extermination, which the Spanish would adopt as their official policy toward the Apaches in 1772. This episode started with a Comanche attack on a mission to the Apaches established perilously deep into hostile Indian territory. Yet despite all the struggles and failures of the various Spanish missions, the San Saba mission was in fact the only one to ever be truly annihilated. For all the evidence, then, of Apache and later Comanche hostility to the missions, it raises the question for me as to why these Plains Indians hadn't wiped out more of these missions. In short, it's because extermination was not the Plains Indians' objective. On the contrary, they actually really liked having San Antonio and the missions around to trade with. Death and destruction was a byproduct of their raids, not the objective. What they really wanted was stuff, like textiles and steel and firearms or a nice sugary treat. Indeed, in later years when Comanche pressure on San Antonio returned, they would refer to it as, quote, their town, end quote, which they permitted to exist simply to raise horses for them and bring them finished goods for trade. No, I think the better question is, why did Spanish missionaries keep trying so damn hard? What in the world could have ever made these men think that a mission in the middle of Apache territory was a good idea? Well, one answer is that the Franciscans were zealots, men of God in a hurry to meet him, and they weren't intimidated by risk to their own lives. Still, by 1759, they should have been questioning the effectiveness of what they were doing. In the entire century that the missions existed in Texas, probably less than 5,000 Indians were ever converted to the faith, and the vast majority of these, like 90%, were done by the San Antonio missions. To be sure, some Indians were eventually integrated into the larger Spanish society as a result of the missionaries' efforts, but very few of these would become property holders or taxpayers in the way that the crown needed them to. And the name mission should remind us that these were all meant to be temporary affairs, authorized typically for 10 years. But in the way that such programs do, they took on a life of their own and would continue well after their populations had peaked, probably sometime in the 1760s or 70s. And even the comparatively successful San Antonio missions were consistently recommended for closure by royal inspectors, citing their cost and unsustainability. We can only assume that most of the other 50 or so missions established in Texas in the 18th century, almost all of which failed, posted even less attractive returns on investment. But set aside the financial aspect for a second. Life in the missions also seemed to be statistically worse for the Indians that lived there. Birth rates plummeted to way below replacement rate. The average number of children in mission Indian families was only 1.3, and their life expectancy dropped. Only eight of the Indians buried in the Valero Cemetery were over the age of 30. It's a little harder to evaluate the impact of disease, particularly by the 1700s, when many of the Indians had developed immunities. Historian Gilberto Hinojosa claims that by the 1700s, Indian deaths from disease were no greater than those of the rest of the San Antonio population though it still causes you to wonder if those mission Indians might have lived a little longer had they lived a little further away. And so why, why in the face of such poor returns on investment and such tragic consequences for the natives did the Spanish remain fixated for so long on their mission model? It's because of their experience in the Valley of Mexico 
in the highlands of Peru. The only comparisons to do justice to the fantastic wealth that Spain had realized in conquering Mexico and Peru is to compare it to the birth of the industrial or internet ages in the U.S. The Spanish were still looking for that next Aztec or Incan empire to drop themselves onto as tribute-extracting overlords. And yet there were only so many Tenochtitlans and Cuscos to be found. The missionary model of the 1600s had developed in response to the fact that there were no more great empires to be conquered. And if there were no more empires to conquer and extract wealth from, then the task of the imperialists must be to build up whatever peoples they could find so they might become tribute-paying citizens. Though I think we call it tax-paying when the tribute comes from your own citizens. And the Spanish had had some success with this. The Tlaxcalans were a central Mexican tribe that allied themselves with the Spanish from the get-go against their old oppressors, the Aztecs. They embraced Spanish friendship, religion, and cultural practices and helped march up through the central Mexican highlands with them, where they were most helpful in serving as a model for other semi-civilized tribes. Indeed, the Laxcalans were to be found marching alongside San Antonians in the Battle of the Twin Villages we just discussed. But the further that the Spanish got from the seats of the old Aztec Empire, the less effective the missionary model became. The fearsome shining conquistadors marching in formation with their fire sticks made quite an impression on a sedentary tribe living in a river valley in Zacatecas. On the South Texas Plains, they were reduced to sunburned, slow-moving targets. It's easy to snicker at the shortcomings of the mission model in retrospect, especially in its final decades. To be totally fair, the Spanish mission model, even at its most successful in a place like San Antonio, stands as a testament to the ability of trendy, bad ideas to persist well past their useful lives. Yet it drew Spanish civilization far beyond the limits of where it would have existed otherwise, and it showed Americans of diverse origins how to tame the semi-arid portion of the continent. And North Americans today owe a much larger debt to these Spaniards than they might realize. Anglo-Americans, recall, were woodsmen. Their model worked in wooded areas with fertile soils, reliable rainfall, and ample game. They didn't know how to run cattle in the open range. They didn't have a cultural legacy of irrigating dry land either, much less fending off mounted Indians. It wasn't until the railroad and Samuel Colt, and only after the Spanish had softened up the Plains Indians for a century, that the Anglo-American model was able to penetrate the semi-arid half of the North American continent. In the next episode, San Antonio finally catches a break. A cattle boom and increased trade generates new wealth in town, which becomes, for the first time, the capital of the province of Texas. And with prosperity comes political assertiveness, as San Antonians begin to acutely appreciate how their frontier identity set them apart from the authorities that occasionally pretended to govern them. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review, because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, I want to thank historian Robert S. Weddle for all of his research into the San Saba Massacre and the subsequent expedition and battle of the Twin Villages. You can find a link to his book on our website, brandonseal.com. And I'm going to make a little bit of an offbeat recommendation here. Go check out my friends at Bear Goods, spelled, of course, B-E-X-A-R. Aside from honoring our great county's name, they also honor San Antonio's 300-year-old leatherworking traditions. Their products are absolutely beautiful. 